This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 6, Episode 2. Welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, brought to you by Mountain Man Medical, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network of podcasts. Today is Thursday, April 7th, 2022. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and I'm joined today by Jacob Paulson. I'm here. Thanks no for the fancy invite. fanfare for, for you today. That's right. No special title, nothing. Just other I'm, than I'm, he's I'm the Jacob. man with a very cool but sometimes finicky dog. <laughs> he, he'd rather me be playing with him right now than doing this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One thing we know for sure, folks, I, I say this as a deterrent. Don't ever try to break into Jacob's house. Not just because he has guns, but because he has a dog. I guarantee you will let him know that you are there. Very sensitive. I've known this dog since he was a pup. And he still freaks out every time I show up. <laughs> <laughs> He's a big boy. He's not a pup anymore. <laughs> Today, we are talking about the ultimate guide to dry fire safety. Uh, we're going to give you our current approach to dry fire safety, which we think is a very important topic of discussion. I think we've covered a lot of these different things, sometimes in parts and pieces and bits here and there. But also things change and evolve and we get better over time and uh, learn. Well, we learn from mistakes. Hopefully this is not one of those areas that we learn from very serious, direct mistake of, you know, firing off rounds when we shouldn't be in certain places. <laughs> so <clears throat> we're going to give you our ultimate guide to dry fire safety. Bunch of tips, tricks, suggestions recommended policies and procedures, but also tools that can help increase your dry fire safety practice as well. So today's episode was sponsored by Gunfighter Gun Oil. Guys, I've <clears throat> been using Gunfighter Gun Oil for some time now, and I just I, I have nothing bad to say about it. I have only good. I'll say this much. We just had uh, breakfast last week, Jacob and I, with the uh, the owner, the current owner of Gunfighter Gun Oil, and that's Mickey Shook of Carry Trainer. And uh, Mickey's an awesome dude. I have nothing bad to say about him. I'm a fan. <laughs> Only good. Uh, we've been friends with Mickey for some time now, and and I'll tell you, I'll tell you, there's there's not a bigger patriot than Mickey Shook. And not only that, there, there there almost isn't a more generous person than Mickey Shook. He's always been so kind and so good to us. Every time we associate with him, uh, he thinks of things, too, that just sometimes just surprise me. Uh, that's the kind of character of a man that's behind Gunfighter Gun Oil. He cares about the product. He cares about making a quality product. He cares that it works. And I do, too. And all my guns run on Gunfighter Gun Oil and are cleaned with Gunfighter Gun Oil products. Check them out. Go to gunfighteroil.com today. And, uh, yeah, I hope you give them a try. It's also available on our website. <clears throat> And also, Gunfighter Gun Oil is a sponsor of the Guardian Conference, and Mickey will be there, too, as one of our instructors, one of our featured instructors, which is really, really cool. He doesn't do that just for anybody, as we found out. <laughs> That's right. Also, today's episode is sponsored by Ready Up Gear Dummy Ammo. 
<clears throat> this is my preferred dummy ammo of choice. In fact, I've got some sitting on my competition belt and some magazines right over my shoulder here. I was just doing some dry fire practice last night. I love the Ready Up Gear dummy ammo because, number one, it's very cost effective. Okay. Having bought many different types of brands of dummy ammo over the years, it's very affordably priced, very reasonably priced for a quality product. These use actual brass cases, okay, that is then filled with a special silicone-like polymer, but it's it's harder than that. Polymer bicarbonate um, or something like that. What's that? I think it's like polymer bicarbonate or I don't know. It's polymer bar- bicarbonate. That sounds fancy. That sounds possible, like what I remember. <laughs> but it's good stuff, man. So uh, it won't hurt. It won't harm your gun. Uh, it's brightly colored, so you know it's a dummy round. Uh, it that polymer fills all the way from the primer cup all the way through the the, the case, and and, the, and of course the the tip is a is formed like just like the standard shape of a FMJ bullet profile. Uh, so that's what I use. They they have a decent weight to them. They're not quite as heavy as a actual round would be, but but they have some. You know, when I load a magazine for dry fire practice with these, it has you know pretty realistic heft to it. I appreciate that. It's great for dry fire practice. It's safe. Uh, it, it, it's quality stuff lasts a long, long time, longer than any of the other dry fire ammo I've, I've used in the past. So I appreciate that. And I encourage you to check out ready up gear, dummy ammo today at readyupgear.com. Of course, today's topic is dry fire focused, and that is a dry fire specific product. And even if you are just doing dry fire practice, maybe you're not getting your guns as dirty as normal, but still consider using gunfire gun oil to keep things in tip top shape. So, let's get into a topic. Uh, the ultimate guide to dry fire safety. I don't know. You recommended this, Jacob. It was your suggestion. Uh, you came to the table with some ideas. I have my responses. <laughs> I suspect that the, you know there may be some things that we have slightly different opinions on, which is always a good thing. Provides a good opportunity for discussion. So, where should we start? Where do we begin? I think there's a mindset issue. <clears throat> I think that we start that there before we get into anything more practical or uh, tangible. I think, I think, in my experience, there's a tendency when the conversation, when the topic comes up of NDs, negligent discharges, mm. there's a tendency for our mind to to associate the idea of an ND with an irresponsible gun owner. And by I, I, what I mean by irresponsible gun owner is somebody who we we clearly don't think that we are we would do what they did, right? Like so, somebody who's keeping a gun in a sock drawer, or it's bouncing around in the glove box of the car, or they're you know cleaning a shotgun and and they look down the barrel to see if there's anything in it. You know, things mm-hmm. that are just grossly mm-hmm. unsafe and irresponsible. Things that that anyone listening to this podcast would never do. If, you, if you're the kind of person who would listen to this podcast, you would never do any of those irresp- grossly irresponsible things. But I think that when we talk about NDs, there's a tendency in our, in our you know, noggin, in our eight-pound gray matter, to, to associate NDs with those gun owners, with those irresponsible types, uh, for a couple of reasons. I think, one, it certainly probably is, is – statistically validated a large number of NDs that we hear about that we're aware of do tend to come from those irresponsible gun owners 
from from people doing things that I would never do that. I really wouldn't. Like I just I wouldn't keep my gun in my sock drawer. Uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't do that. You know, uh, I wouldn't have my loaded rifle in the back of the truck where my dog's running around and, and he steps on the trigger. That's happened at least twice that I know of. Uh, I've seen the news stories. So mm-hmm. so like that. We we just it's we, statistically speaking we we tend to associate NDs with irresponsibility because I think the majority of them we hear about that's that's where that's where they happen. I also think we do it because it makes us feel better about ourselves. There's a it's a principle of, of uh, dissonance, right? Of cognitive dissonance. Like, well, if I associate negligent discharges at large with irresponsible gun use and irresponsible gun ownership then it makes me feel more comfortable about myself and my gun ownership because it's less scary. I don't have to consider that it might happen to me because I don't do those dumb things that those other people are doing when they have these negligent discharges. So I think the place we need to start this conversation is with an acceptance that guns are potentially dangerous tools and all of us are vulnerable. And if you've been doing this long enough, you know professionals let alone just you know your average responsible gun owner, but straight up true professionals that have had negligent discharges. Uh, people who who I think are highly respectable and credible. So it happens. Absolutely. No, it's a it's a it's a very real thing. It's a very real possibility for any of us. One hundred percent. I couldn't agree more with that point that you just made. So I, I think what you're su- suggesting is is us uh, being honest with ourselves and recognizing or accepting the fact that myself, you, every one of you listening to this or viewing this right now are all, I don't know if capable is my best. We're all vulnerable. We're all, it it, it is a, we are all vulnerable to, having a lapse of reason, of judgment, of whatever it is, and making a mistake with respect to dry fire. Yep. Having a loaded gun when we don't int- uh, uh, intention or intend to do, and uh, discharging rounds when we don't intend to. And uh, that, that that's a problem. It's a safety problem. Big Absolutely. Time. So yeah. that, that's, that's point A, is, is just accept that this could happen to you. And this is not just about irresponsibility. This is a conversation about how to be extra cautious so that even when you act reasonably and responsibly, you still mitigate risk that is absolutely present despite your best efforts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, really what you're getting at here is another popular topic when talking about such things is the attitude or the idea of uh, complacency. Um, that complacency is something that sets in when one typically with someone who is knowledgeable about a particular thing, but because they're knowledgeable, uh, ego creeps in a little bit, uh, a belief that, you know, well, I know this thing and, you know, I'm infallible. I can't make mistakes. Uh, and you get lax in your attitude. You get lax in your approach. You get lax, uh, with following per- policies and procedures. I mean, this happens in so many examples in life, you know, so many areas. Uh, I've seen it happen. I mean, I've experienced personally 
you know, like in the, in the workplace, you know, where you're working in a potentially dangerous job and you get complacent because, you know, you do the same thing all the time and you, and you might even do it without perfectly following the safety procedures, but because you get away with it for 500 or a thousand times, you think no big deal, but all, all it takes is that one time and then all heck breaks loose. I mean, it reminds me of my accident on a job site years ago, falling off a roof and getting really badly hurt. That was a moment of 100% complacency of not being 100% focused in the moment and also not following certain safety protocols. <laughs> yeah, no. I think you're right. Complacency is a factor. It's part of that mindset uh, aspect. And, yeah. and repetition does lead to a blind eye. Yep. You know, this is one of the reasons why we teach the safety rules like we do. So rule number one is um, know the condition of your firearm, okay, and treat it like a potentially dangerous tool. Always treat it like a potentially dangerous tool. Um, that first piece, like that is an absolute, it's an absolute statement. Know the condition of your firearm. If we always knew the condition, then it'd be pretty hard to have a negligent discharge. Um, when in doubt, check. Like, you, you, you need to have knowledge. But even with that, we still have things in place. That's why the other rules also exist. That's also why some of the things we're going to talk about today, including some of the tools um, that we'll talk about, also exist. Because it's, it's that extra fallback. But, but I, even with the tools, and that's, and that's the other thing. This kind of goes with like the whole safety first fallacy. Um, the idea is that we sometimes try to make certain professions or workplaces so safe and we preach the attitude of safety first, safety first, that it, it can the, the unintended consequence of that can be that we place too much faith in the in the safety first concept and in the protections we put in place that we forget that there's still a personal responsibility that exists. And that is knowing the condition of your firearm at all times. That's right. Yeah. Just got to know. Yeah. Okay, cool. So avoid denial, accept risk and responsibility and vulnerability. Yep. What's next? Uh, unloaded is good. Inert is better. Hmm. So I think it's a general consensus for obvious reasons that in order to drive fi safely, a person has to unload the gun. And probably you've been told, you know, unload it once, check it a second time, triple check it, you know, got to have an unloaded gun, right? That's that's essential core and obvious as far as dry fire goes. You get, in order for it to be dry fire, the gun has to be unloaded. So so I think that most people are aware of that conceptually and and hopefully have a good habit built around unloading it and then checking it and checking it again. And certainly an unloaded gun uh, is, is not going to fire, right? I mean, it's, it's dry is dry. Uh, but the, the problem comes because an unloaded gun can get reloaded during the course of uh, yeah. dry fire practice or exercises, right? Yeah. Any number of things can happen that cause a round to be seated. Now, I have been collecting uh, dry fire ND stories for the last several months. And, and reviewing them and reading them and trying to understand what are the common patterns and things that happen. And it, I'm telling you, people accidentally reload the gun uh, every single time there's an ND 
during dry fire because that's the only way for for there to be an ND in dry fire is for the gun to get re reloaded at some point. And so while yes, we need to unload it, like absolutely, an unloaded gun super important. I think that the like higher law of this, like the the, the next step here, is to make the gun inert to to make it so the gun can't rechamber and fire around while you're conducting the dry fire, right? To remove the human element uh, potential mistake of reloading the gun by temporarily rendering the gun inert. And I think, you know, we, we're going to talk about several different methods by which that could be done, mm-hmm. but I think that's, that's step two here. Like in the ultimate guide to dry fire safety, it's, Hey, yes, un- of course I'm the gun, but then render it inert, make it impossible for the gun to be accidentally reloaded. Yeah. I, I think some people look at different, options that exist for inert dry fire practice or training and think, well, I'm already short on funds. You know, I just bought, I just bought my first gun, let's say, and I just don't have a lot of extra disposable income to buy this or this or that to have this, you know, to make it even more safe for say dry fire practice uh, by making it inert in some fashion. Um, And and so I think, you know, the, the, everybody's got to start someplace. The good news is, is there are some solutions to making most guns, most guns that people are actually doing dry fire practice with inert for very, very, very low cost. And that's, that's, that's a good thing. And that's part of, you know, I think some of the methods we're going to talk about here today. Yeah. And there's lots of ways that can be done. I mean, obviously you could do it. You could try and do it really cheap, but it might remove some of the functionality of the gun. Like I know some people who will stick something in the ejection port to keep the, the slide from coming forward all the way into battery. You know, that, that's the cost of a toothpick. Um, but the problem is that then your trigger is also dead and you can't use the trigger. So, so you know, there's, there's a variety of ways to, to do that. I'll actually take the opposite approach and I'll start on the expensive end. And we can both throw out some sure. ideas here. Uh, but you could, you could buy a dedicated training gun. Mm-hmm. So something like a cert pistol, for example, or you could buy a real gun and just dedicate it to training by disabling the gun effectively, like removing a firing pin or any number of other things that are, are known to reliably make the gun inert. Um, so those would be really, you know, certainly buying a secondary gun and just using it for dry fire would be mm-hmm. a very expensive route to go. Mm-hmm. Um, buying a, a dedicated training tool like a cert pistol is not nearly as expensive price buying a second gun depending on the gun you have. Uh, but that's still probably a 200 yeah. to $400 uh, product. So it's, it's not inexpensive. And I'll give one more that's kind of in this price category. And that would be the Cool Fire Trainer, which you and I both like. Cool Fire mm-hmm. Trainer is a great product. It replaces the barrel and the recoil spring in your semi-automatic handgun. And it's a, it's a red barrel, so it's very identifiable. You can see that the gun has been rendered inert when you see that color uh, barrel through the ejection port. And, and it's it's absolutely 100% inert. The cool fire trainer installed makes that gun incapable of chambering around into the chamber. It just won't feed. Um, so those are all, you know, a cool fire trainer to throw out a cost is probably 250 plus um, depending on stuff. So so that gives some some ideas that are on the more expensive end of ways you can render the gun inert or, inert, or just use an inert gun that can't be rendered live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was actually exactly where my mind uh, was starting uh, with this when you talked about expensive and two was the dedicated training gun. I'll give you some uh, strategies or ways people 
make dedicated guns inert. Um, first of all, <clears throat> there is, um, and I've known some people have actually taken uh, firing pins, sometimes in some cases new ones, but in, in, in some cases used ones. Like maybe this is a gun that, like a dedicated dry fire gun, it makes actually a lot of sense to take maybe one of your older, more wa- more worn guns. Uh, and, uh, like, Hey, I've already got 40,000 rounds through this. Let's say, you know, well, you know, maybe that becomes a dedicated dry fire gun now while it's mate. It's, you know, a lot of times it makes sense when this dedicated dry fire gun is identical to maybe your carry gun or a competition gun. If you're, if that's why you do a lot of dry fires for competition purposes or both and, uh, and take that, uh, used gun. Um, you can take the firing pin you know, remove it from, you know, the, the uh, striker safety or excuse me, the striker assembly or firing pin assembly and actually like cut the tip of the firing pin off and boom, instant, like actually other than the cost of the gun itself, like there's no additional cost. You just are taking an existing part and chopping something off. And now all of a sudden it can't, it can't fire around. Um, also, uh, uh, you, you could, you know, do certain things like, uh, I know I heard of one one gentleman that took, you know, it was a very well used gun, very worn. In fact, he even talked about how the barrel that was in it was pretty worn, like the rifling in the groove, the grooves in the rifling was was pretty worn. And so he and he had a welder, and he just actually welded the chamber on it, just just added some some weld in there, and all you know, all instantaneously you can't uh, get around a chamber into the gun. So very, very simple uh, solutions that you can do when, when you don't mind maybe modifying or destroying a part of the gun uh, to make it inert. So, but I, I do recognize that's uh, that's an expensive proposition for a lot of folks to dedicate a whole second gun for dry fire. Um, I would say that I'm finally at a place where I kind of am able to do that. Um, I mean, for instance, I have my, I have my main competition gun and I have a backup competition gun. Well, the backup always lives with a barrel block installed in it. So that becomes the dedicated dry fire gun because it's, it's, you know, then it's, I just leave it set up and it's ready to go. And, you know, so, uh, and, and my, the, my carry gun is basically the, the same gun or same type of gun as my competition gun. So, Kind of, it's all, it's the same sort of thing. So, um, yeah, that, that's an expensive proposition. Yeah, we let's go to the barrel block since you mentioned that one, and then we'll we'll throw out some options that are in the middle price range. Sure, but a barrel block is thirteen bucks plus shipping. Yeah, twelve ninety nine yeah. plus shipping, and the barrel block's really nice because it, it it's easy to install. You don't have to disassemble anything. You just lock the slide to the rear, shove that in that thing in through the ejection port into the chamber, and it'll you know protrude out the muzzle of the gun. It's it's caliper specific. It absolutely 100% renders the gun inert. Like you just, there's a round will not be chambered. That gun will not fire when the barrel block is installed. And unlike some of these other things that we're describing, a nice thing about the barrel block being at only 13 bucks is you do have a visual indicator that that barrel block protruding from the uh, end of the muzzle is something you can see. So that if you're Riley, you know that that's the one that you use for dry fire as opposed to the one that doesn't have the orange stick sticking out. Uh, or whatever it might be. And, and also barrel block at that $12.99 at that $13 price point comes with three mag blocks, which are convenient. They're A, they're an incremental additional uh, potential safety value, but they also allow for some some realistic 
the added realism because the slide's not going to lock back if you you know practice a, a mag change or something like that. So so yeah, for thirteen bucks, that's the cheapest, probably most foolproof method uh, without some sort of modification to a gun um, that can't be undone to to render a gun inert. Uh, and then in the middle, I said I'd mentioned some middle price point options. Uh, a laser thing, uh, cartridge thingy, I, I, like probably most well-known by the, by the laser ammo brand because they're kind of the first to market or something like that. But now there's a lot of these, a lot of products that are very comparable under different names. Ryan and I tend to use the laser dot from readyupgear.com. But, but something like that renders the gun inert. Uh, I've done testing on this. Like I've I've stuck this thing in the in the in the gun. I've used a couple different guns to test this, and then I put dummy ammo in the magazine I, and I attempt to, to chamber around. It's just not going to happen. The laser cartridge renders the gun inert. Uh, now that's probably in the range of sixty to hundred bucks, depending on where you buy it from and what you know what you get. Uh, and then another option in that kind of ballpark is the dry fire mag. Uh, I was looking to see if I have my dry fire mag here handy. I don't, but the dry fire mag is a replacement magazine that makes it uh, so that you can get repeated presses of the trigger uh, without having to cycle a slide on a semi-automatic. It's not available for all guns. And so maybe that's, that's one reason it's maybe not as, as popular, but it is available for some of the more popular guns. And so that's when you could check it. It's in the hundred dollar price range. Yep. Cool. Yeah. So we've, we've covered the high end on uh, inert, Training options, low end. Uh, the barrel block, I think, is frankly one of the the best products out there. Period for dry fire, just because it it, it does its job so exceedingly well, and it's so value priced. It's really hard to go wrong with it. Uh, I mean, you mentioned like so so like say uh, laser cartridges, right? Um, technically, they make the gun inert while they're installed. However, a laser cartridge can fall out. Sure, yeah, right? valid. Yeah. And so, so there's some there's a little bit greater potential for failure um, to occur there if you're not paying attention. You know, to where you could potentially end up with that falling out. You don't realize it. You also don't somehow realize you stick a loaded mag in it. You know, and all of a sudden you have a problem. Um, <clears throat> You know, the uh, a lot of the so like the ready up gear uh, laser dot trainer uh, cartridges, which is what we sell, what we uh, recommend to use. Um, they, uh, you know, and, and they're very, very similar to a lot of the other similar products that are on the market, but they have these little rubber O rings that are what are supposed to retain them in the chamber. And those over time do wear out or stretch or get thinner. And so you want to be making sure you're staying on top of those and replacing them as as necessary. And actually, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but there's a Ready Up Gear Laser Dot Trainer uh, uh, maintenance kit or whatever it's called. That yeah, you can it's buy. like a buck fifty or two two dollars. You'll pay more for shipping than you will for the yeah the maintenance kit. But and it, it comes yeah replacement O rings and batteries. Yeah, it comes with a set of batteries and O rings, and it is reasonably priced. So uh, you know, I recommend if you're going to buy a Laser Dot Trainer, like buy a couple of those little maintenance kits along with it. Cause they're pretty inexpensive and you're going to be set for, for a good while. So. Yep. Yeah. Th- those are good thoughts. I, we've, I've said this before. And so I'll just say this and then get off my little bandwagon, mm-hmm. but, or my shameless plug, if you want to call it that. 
every gun owner in America who has any degree of seriousness about using their firearm on any sort of regular basis should own a barrel block for 13 bucks. There's just really no excuse to, to not own and use a barrel block when appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, one other thing I'll throw out in, in this kind of category, although it doesn't necessarily make things inert, but I, th- I think it, well, actually, you know what? I'll save this because I, I see we're going to talk about redundancy, and maybe I'll save this for the redundancy part of our discussion. I think it'll fit in there well. Um, did we okay, cover all these? What's that? That's a good tease. Oh, good, good. Um, now, we covered high-end solutions. We covered kind of low-end to somewhat intermediate. Was there anything else that we missed in the in the middle there? Um, there's some, I mean, I, I'm sure there's some things I'm not thinking of off the top of my head, but I think we did some pretty good stuff there. We talked about barrel block. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about laser cartridge insert thingies. We talked about dry fire mag. We talked about cool fire trainer. We talked mm-hmm. about cert or other, you know, dedicated type mm-hmm. training guns. And we talked about just having a separate oh. dedicated real fire that you've altered or, or changed in some way. I know. Uh, cause it's sitting here on my desk and I was like, Oh yeah, I meant to talk about this. Uh, here'd be another, I guess, intermediate option. And that is a airsoft mm. or, uh, yeah, an airsoft pistol. That's basically an, a copy of, or at least a similar enough copy of your actual gun. Uh, so in this case, this, this is actually, this is not an airsoft one. This is actually a BB pistol, um, or pellet gun or whatever. I've, I, it's never actually had belt pellets or BBs loaded into it. Um, but uh, yeah, like I honestly, I prefer probably the airsoft version. I have some airsoft guns that, that fill a similar purpose, but this is another option. So I, I actually have been using this, uh, although it's not the airsoft one, but the pellet one. I've been using this for some dry fire lately. The trigger's a little different, but you know, it's it, it's acceptable. Like this is the only way I could reasonably afford a uh, dedicated kind of airsoft style gun with a, with a red dot on it. So I could do a little bit of red dot pra- practice uh, with a gun like this. So that'd be another option. Also, yeah, to make myself feel better, I'll just say that that would have been included in my dedicated training gun category. Oh, yeah. But these are not anywhere as close to as expensive as <laughs> like, well, I mean, for instance, like you can get the, you can get some airsoft guns that are really p- pretty good copies of real guns, for like 120 to 150. Yeah, it really depends you know? on on the gun, right? Like I'm I'm on the Elite Force website right now, which is a division of Umarex, and mm-hmm. uh, you know I can go get a Glock 19 Gen 3 uh, BB gun for 79.99. I can get a Glock 17 Gen 3 BB gun for 189. You know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. intermediate range. Yeah. One other final thought uh, for this would be a more on the on the lower end side would be uh, things that you can do or use a blue gun for. Mm. So so you don't have to use an actual live gun all the time for dry fire practice. But if you were just going to work on, say, draw, for instance, uh, and this is a great idea, a great suggestion f- when you're working, say, from a new holster, um, just to make it even safer, like, hey, if you're just working on draw, you're just working on getting reps on that holster, we'll use a blue gun. And those yeah. are, of course, absolutely 100% inert. Yep, yep. That's a good thought. Cool. Let's talk about dry fire location. Yeah, I think this is also a fairly well-known dry fire safety tip, but we would be remiss to not include it in this conversation, right? The ultimate dry fire safety guide. So the idea here being that you always do dry fire in the same place and that that place be 
a, a maintained clean environment. And by clean, we specifically mean that, that live ammunition doesn't go there. So some people might call this like a dry fire dojo, right? It's a, maybe it's a dedicated room in the house or a corner of the basement or whatever it might be. And that's the place that I go to do my dry fire. Maybe I got some targets set up. Maybe that's where my gear, my dry fire gear is. But I, I make sure I go to some effort to keep that space clean uh, of live ammunition, right? That I make sure when I walk into that space, live ammo doesn't come with me so that I, I just uh, uh, nip in the butt any potential possibility that live ammunition is in the same place as me when I'm conducting dry fire. That's, I think, the broad concept. Yeah. Uh, I think the first time I heard, at least for me personally, maybe it existed before the, this, I don't know. But the first time I think I heard the dry fire dojo phrase or terminology was from our friend Annette Evans in her dry fire primer book, uh, where she certainly talks about it. Or get, you know, she gives it a, a good couple of pages in her book about a dry fire, you know, setting up a dry fire dojo or dry fire studio, I think was another term she gave it. And and I really think this is a great idea because like you just said, the idea is, is that this room, this space, this area, my garage, whatever it is, is set aside as my dry fire dojo. That's where I put the dry fire tools, you know, as far as whether it's a start, my start gun or airsoft gun or whatever. That's where I put my, my dry fire targets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that the live gun or the loaded gun or the, or the live ammo does not cross the threshold of that dry fire dojo. And that, that is the key. That is the key. And you live by that. You abide by that. You make that a policy in your life that the dry fire dojo is sacred. I mean, I, I came up in my youth. I did a little bit of karate in my youth for a time. Uh, and then the family moved and, you know, I no longer had access to the dojo that I had come up in and I never picked up karate after that again, at least for, well, not karate. I've done a little bit of some other stuff, but, but I remember one of the first lessons that I learned going there was this was the dojo where we trained. Right. And one thing that did not come into the dojo was shoes, street shoes. Right. So it's kind of like same, same idea. Uh, I also spent some time living in Japan. Right. And in their homes, there's the threshold with, and, and like the entry area part of their home that they refer to as the Genkan. That's where your shoes stop. You come in, you come into the Genkan. Street shoes come off. A lot of times you'll have uh, slippers that you would wear or, or sandals or something you'd wear inside the home. Or maybe you just go bare feet or socks. But the shoes stop at the Gencon. They do not come into the house. So it's it, that's I think that's where like the dry fire dojo, I, I really like that terminology because it, it just totally makes sense in my world that it's like sort of this inner sanctum, sacred place, you know. And in, this, in our context, the live ammo does not enter the dojo. Yeah, and a lot, a lot of the negligent discharge dry fire stories that I've collected are situations where someone was effectively too lazy or too short on time to go to the dojo, mm -hmm. right? Oh, I'm waiting for the family. I'm sitting here at the kitchen table. We're going to leave in 10 minutes. I, I want to get a couple quick reps in. So I'll just, you know, drop the mag, clear the chamber and and, and do some reps. And my, my live ammo, I got it out of the gun. I loaded it, but it's just sitting here next to me. You know, 
or uh, I got one from a range a range master who's at the gun range in his office, and he's got a few minutes before his next appointment. A student's going to come in for a class or something like that, and so he's got a few minutes. He's like, ah, oh, just get some quick dry fire in, right? So he drops the mag, clears the chamber, and starts to do some dry fire. Both of those stories start with, ah, I don't want to go to the effort. I don't have the time to go to the effort to go somewhere to my dojo, to that place where I normally, to, to clean the environment of live ammunition. I'm just going to get some quick reps in. Both those stories end with negligent discharges of rounds being fired off. Mm-hmm. So, so like, yes, have the dojo, make sure it's a clean environment, treat it with that kind of, of respect and, and make it a hard, like non-breakable rule. But, but along with that, then it has to go this attitude or this, this you know, follow-up sub-rule of that's where I conduct dry fire, right? It doesn't do me any good to have this awesome place set up and, and to make sure that's a clean environment. Never, never let it live ammo into that place if I'm just too lazy to go there every time I want to do some dry fire. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's part of that, right? It's, it's got to mm-hmm. be, yes, I'm going to have this environment. I'm going to make sure it's a clean environment. I'm never going to allow live ammunition in there. And that's the only place I'm going to conduct dry fire with with my live with mm-hmm. my real gun, you know, with with, yeah. with a real gun. Yeah, yeah. Now we recognize it may not always be possible for everybody to have a dedicated dry fire dojo. Um, although I do think with some, you know, some some good thought, I think you can probably figure out your own equivalent of something like that. But, uh, but again, regardless, uh, everybody's situation and circumstances are different. And so, uh, uh, you know, use critical thinking and, and figure out what makes most sense for you that you're able to do. Um, and, and whatever it is you come up with, just make sure that, like, this is the policy and I'm going to stick to that. There's something else that I, comes straight out of Annette's book, uh, Dry Fire Primer, that I think is an excellent suggestion where she talks about... Um, when you are done dry firing, because like a, a one common, and I, I've certainly heard of this being an issue. This, this this happens, I think, probably more frequently than we even realize, is where someone's doing dry fire and they're doing a great job doing the dry fire piece safely, but then they get done, and, and you know because they're practicing with their carry gun or whatever, they they go back to a loaded condition, you know, and strap it back on. Like, okay, dry fire is done for today. Load up my gun, back in the holster. And a mental lapse occurs and a minute or two later, they're like, oh, you know, you you just got done doing this. And if you do dry fire well, you do it right. It it can be fun and and enjoyable. And it's like, oh, I just want to do one more rep, you know, and you grab the gun and you go out and bang. And so the suggestion she makes is, well, there's two. One is it's maybe not a bad idea to to, uh, verbally actually say out loud. Um, I am now done dry firing or I have completed dry fire. Um, the other thing that I think is actually probably a little bit more effective is to actually uh, set the gun aside for like 10 minutes and do something else entirely and take your mind completely away from what you were just doing in dry fire. Give it a solid 10 minutes before you do anything else with that gun. And I, I think that's actually not a not a bad idea. Yeah. So there's 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 definitely some various approaches that can be done here. Now, I like I like the oh, verbal. Go sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I like the uh, and I, I've had people tell me they do this. I like the idea of a verbal announcement at start and end. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, just starting dry fire, dry fire over. Um, I know someone also who, who he puts up a sign, almost like it's a uh, like if you're in a studio and you got the signs like live, we're on the air, you know, the on air sign kind of thing. Like same kind of idea. Like you know, they put up the dry fire sign. Like I'm doing dry fire, and maybe that's for also the benefit of someone else who might wander into the environment and see you, you know, doing your thing. But then take you know, same thing. Sign comes down, right? Like these these other like things that you do that signal to your brain and maybe others in the environment as well to like now's my start or now's my, my end time. I'm done now. Um, mm-hmm. those, uh, I, I think all that's valid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Um, forgot what the, uh, other little piece was I was going to throw in there. Um, as we kind of start talking over each other, so maybe they'll come back. Um, well, this is a nice segue into my next thought here. Yeah, no, I was thinking that as well. So I think it's, really important to have a hard start and a hard stop with dry fire. So maybe 100% of the time, but certainly the very least a high percentage of the time in the stories I've collected from people who have had an ND during dry fire, a very large amount of the time, the ND follows immediately follows a distraction. So conducting dry fire, distraction happens, Resume dry fire, negligent discharge happens. That's a very, very common pattern, like at least nine out of 10. So, so clearly distractions are a problem. And you can't avoid distractions entirely, by the way. Like <laughs> phone starts ringing. Oh, I'll leave the phone in a different room. The dog starts barking. You know, I mean, your wife walks in and asks you a question uh, or, your, or your husband, should you be a woman? Whatever it is. No, no judgment. Uh, but, you know, the, the point is like distractions are not completely unavoidable. They can happen. And so there's got to be this like hard start, hard stop approach where I make a decision. I'm going to now start dry firing. Right. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow the routine that I have in place for my dry fire, uh, whatever that is. Right. If it's installing the barrel block or if it's setting up some targets or it's you know putting the M over here in this room as I go into this, whatever the thing is, I, I you know set some routine in place. that This is what I do when I start dry fire. So this is my start. I'm starting now. So I'm going to follow that routine and I'm going to begin to engage. And then I need to have a similar hard stop. And if if a distraction occurs, that's my stop. That's got to be my stop, right? You know, dog starts, you know, my wife walks in the room like, hey, I want to talk to you about such as, I was like, okay, hold on. I got to stop. You know, I, I need to put a hard stop in this. So so give me a second. Do, 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 do. Or maybe it's, hey, you know, I just fell down the stairs and I'm bleeding. I got to start running now, right? So so I, I, I got to determine in that moment, though, that my dry fire session is over. It's done. I'm not going to resume when I get back. Because it's just an extraordinary pattern that the large percentage of these NDs during dry fire occur immediately following some sort of distraction. Uh, I'll give you just a couple of tangible examples, then, Riley, I'm sure you have some comments. But uh, one of them, uh, a guy sitting at his kitchen table conducting some dry fire, and he gets a phone call from his dad. He'd been waiting to hear from his dad. His dad's had some medical issues. He'd been out, uh, had, had a doctor's appointment that day. And so he was waiting for an update from his dad. Dad calls, got to take the call, right? Not going to deny dad. It's really important. We talk to dad. So he takes the call, right? And while he's on the phone, he's like, okay, I think I'm, I'm yeah, family, I need to be done. So he goes ahead and reloads the gun, holsters up, gets done with the phone call with dad, right? 
And somehow they're just the lapse in the brain that doesn't say, oh, by the way, you reloaded your gun while you were on the phone. Mm -hmm. Right. So he goes ahead and puts the phone down and resumes dry fire and it ain't dry. And a, a, another another similar one with the, the the range master one I talked about earlier, same concept was conducting dry fire. Someone comes in the office, asks a question. He determines I I probably you know should we go ahead and be done now? So reloads the gun. Person leaves the office, uh, decides hey I'm gonna get a couple more reps in. Bang, right? So so obviously if you've already done all the things we've talked about leading up till now, that would be very difficult because you've cleaned the environment, you've put the ammunition somewhere, all that other stuff. But without any question, distractions are a common problem that lead to, to NDs. And I think the way to best mitigate them is to have a hard start process, uh, some sort of a system procedure, procedure is the best word, some sort of hard start pr uh, procedure and a hard stop procedure, and to recognize that the second a distraction occurs, that's your hard stop. You're done now. Like you're you're not going to start later. It's over now. Yeah. Oh yeah. This is exactly what I was touching on a moment ago with respect to, um, you know, the attitude that sometimes uh, a person would get done dry firing, load up their gun with live ammo again their carry ammo, let's say, and then like a moment later, they go back to doing dry fire. Um, it, it's a very real risk. This is why I think the idea, the concept of a dry fire dojo works so well, because if you only dry fire while in the dojo, and if you only have live ammo outside of the dojo, then part of your hard stop, hard, hard start, hard stop procedure becomes that I unload my gun outside the dojo. I go in the dojo. I do the dry fire thing when I'm done. And that's, that includes if I get interrupted in the middle of that, like, let's say I, for some reason, have to leave the dojo area. Well, it's fine to leave with an unloaded gun, right? But what you don't do is you don't dry fire outside the dojo. You know, you didn't get, you didn't get, distracted and then leave the dojo and while you're out wherever you are do dry fire again no if you're going to continue doing practice draws or whatever you go back to the dojo meanwhile if you left the dry fire dojo because you got distracted you got called away whatever and out and while you're out there you mindlessly load up that gun you go back into the dojo right like and by the way, you should have the same procedure. When you go back into dojo, what's part of the procedure? It's the hard checking start. The, checking the gun again. Exactly. It's, well, I'm going into dry fire dojo. I'm going to do dry fire. The procedure is before stepping across that threshold, check my gun, check my equipment. Mm -hmm. So, so yes, the, 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 you're exactly right. Like These two concepts tie together very, very, very well. If it's executed like we were talking about here, it this is, it's pretty hard to screw up. If you, if you, I mean, like you will make a mistake by not following the procedure, but if you always follow the procedure, it's pretty hard to make a mistake. Yeah. Build, build a procedure around the start, build a procedure around the stop. If anything happens mid session, that's your stop. And if you want to, if you want to resume later, you have to start the whole thing from scratch. You got to restart whatever your normal start procedure is, and correlating all that with the clean room with the dojo concept, I think, is super valid. Good stuff. Yeah.
You know, the one thing that I did remember that I said I'd forgotten about a moment ago um, was this is kind of a an alternate viewpoint, which I was introduced to not that long ago, and I find I found it intriguing then, and I still find it intriguing now. I say intriguing because I don't know quite yet what to make of it, although I understand the mental attitude about it. And what that is, is I have been told by a few folks, I think more often than not, people abide by sort of the dry fire dojo approach, but I've been told now by a couple of folks that believe in the idea of they unload the gun and they keep the loaded ammo right where they can see it. And like even one individual I know of has a special, uh, we'll call it a tray or a small box that their live ammo, like say their carry ammo for their carry gun that they maybe are doing dry fire with, it goes in that box and it is in the box and is visible and is like they know where it is and they, and it, and they can account for it. And by nature of it being accountable, like it's hard to accidentally end up with it in the gun. It's kind of the idea. I'm not saying I subscribe to this idea. I'm just saying I've heard that school of thought given, and I, I find it intriguing. I think it has I prefer, merit. I yeah yeah. I and, think it has merit. I prefer the dojo approach. Uh, my I have a, a family room in my basement that is my dry fire dojo. I have targets pasted up on all four walls. <laughs> that fortunately now my wife has just gotten used to, and she just ignores them, which is great. Um, but there was a time where it was like are you ever going to take those down? It's like, why? You know, it just cost me extra work. You know, like you're not down here that often anyway, (laughs) you know? So it's like, I just had the targets up and like that space is the dojo. (laughs) So she's a, she's a good woman. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, Determine like if if you're listening to this and you're like this all sounds great. Uh, maybe you're just now thinking about getting really more dedicated to dry fire practice and doing this more often. Maybe you know for any any reason that might be. Um, build your procedure and write it down. Like, don't be. It's like I'm not saying like put it up on the wall though. That may not be a bad idea. But I do think there's value to committing something to paper. You know when I conduct dry fire, I will do the following. You know maybe I'm going to have that verbal command. I'm going to say out loud. You know starting dry fire. I'm going to you know put live ammo in X place. I'm going to conduct my dry fire in this place. I'm going to uh, you know whatever it is like you know build build out your procedure and write it down. Okay, and and then also do the same thing for your your stop procedure. When I have a stop, this is going to be what I do. And I think it's okay to personalize it. Like, I don't think you have to follow this stuff. Like I'll give you an example something I do that I wasn't going to bring up, but it's kind of unique to me is I have a dry fire uh, range bag. I have a range bag with all my dry fire gear. And only thing that goes in that bag is dry fire stuff. There's no live ammo in that bag. Uh, Real guns don't go in that bag. It's just dry fire gear. So I may not conduct dry fire in the same place every time. I'm, I'm a person who does not have a dry fire dojo, but I do grab that bag. That bag becomes part of my start procedure. I grab the dry fire range bag. I can see it. It's right over there on the floor. And I grab that bag, and that's kind of part of that mental cue. It's like, okay, this is going to be the stuff I use 
for dry fire. And if I'm going to use my carry gun, then I have I have a procedure for that as well, right? This is what I'm going to do. But I'm not going to take the ammo out and put it in my dry fire range bag. I don't know. It just works for me. Like for me and my process, I like having a, a specific range bag for all my dry fire stuff. So so you can personalize it, but I do think it, there's value in putting it on paper and, and making sure you, you're clear that you built a procedure and you're going to follow it. Yeah. Yeah. I- I I think you're definitely in the minority, the the vast minority. But I pro I actually don't think you're the only person that has like a like a dry fire range bag, if you will. Well, I probably uh, have more dry fire crap <laughs> than, than most than people. Most people. For sure, for That's sure. the nature of being in the industry sure. and selling these products and you know, yeah. buying competing products to test them and whatever. But but yeah, yeah I, and it's also as a firearm instructor, there's value to me having a dry fire range bag. I could take it to certain types of classes that are classroom only, and I know that you know this this bag is safe stuff that I can take to the classroom. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, it may not be a, yeah. a piece of advice for everybody, I, but I, I offer it as, just as an example of something that's unique to me mm-hmm. that that I do that that works for me. Yeah, and I I think it makes a lot of sense to have that dedicated bag, especially if you have like a dedicated dry fire pistol mm-hmm. and then you'd have the, you know, maybe some dedicated mags, some dedicated, you know, dummy ammo that we, I mean, like having all the tools in one place, I think there's a lot of sense that that makes speaking of dedicated, uh, uh, mags. And, and I'm going to use this as a opportunity to go into our last, uh, point of discussion, which uh, has to do with redundancy. Um, and, and I would say this is, uh, almost a, a a form of redundancy. Uh, it doesn't become its own solution for making a gun inert, but I think there's something to be said about having dedicated dry fire magazines for your dry fire gun. Even if you don't have a dedicated gun, see, it's a little bit more uh, affordable to, you know, magazines cost less, obviously, than a full gun. So you could have some dedicated magazines. Uh, that way you, you are never crossing over. And this could be true in, in the case of like a dry fire dojo setup where live ma- ammo and live mags, mags you use for your carry gun or whatever, stay outside the dojo and you have dedicated magazines for within the dojo. But then having dedicated magazines that are only used for dry fire, they could be marked a certain way. They could be written on, they could be painted, whatever, or have a different color base pad or base plate than your normal mags. And then you could also have dedicated uh, dummy ammo um, that goes along with those as well. Uh, I suppose you could always leave them loaded with the dummy ammo, but it probably wouldn't necessarily be a bad idea to like always verify uh, that the dummy ammo that you actually have with you or in your mags or in your dry fire area is actually, in fact, uh, dummy ammo. Um, I have heard of people thinking, you know, like, like for instance, and I do the same thing as far as like I have a baggie with dummy ammo in it okay um and the thing i've heard of happening is that somebody ends up you know so like they have this this pouch or this baggie or whatever of dry fire ammo or dummy ammo and then at some point somehow a live round gets mixed in and they don't notice but you know you look at it and, and at a glance you might not catch that there's a live round mixed in there because they all kind of look somewhat similar even in even when you have 
dummy rounds that are a different color, very obvious different color than a live round. The live round still sometimes can get lost in the mix and kind of blend in. I think where there's a potential for this to happen, because you might ask, well, how would I end up with live ammo mixed in with the dummy ammo? Well, do you ever use dummy ammo at the live fire range? Well, you, you do you you know, uh, drills, you know, malfunction drills at the range, you're mixing in some dummy ammo with your live ammo. Well, in the course of that, it's possible that as you are doing malfunction practice at the live fire range and you're picking up dummy rounds off the ground that you accidentally pick up live rounds along with the dummy rounds that you're trying to pick up and for whatever reason not notice that or this might be more common than the case for some of us that are like instructors and maybe you're working with students and students are using dummy rounds you're maybe you're lending them to them or whatever over the course of a day and they're picking things up and handing it back to you you need to be accountable for for that stuff and inspect it well and i find so, live rounds on the ground at the range all the time and i pick them up i'm like ooh, free ammo oh yeah yeah sure well i don't I don't ever shoot the stuff I pick up. I do. Jacob likes to live on the you know wild side. So I absolutely do. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, I, I really like your idea of dedicated mags uh, for dry fire. I, ne- I never thought about that before. Actually, that's, I'm really glad you brought that up. I'm going to put that on my little list I have over here. And I because I, I I do I have now for maybe the last couple of years. I can't remember who gave me the idea, but I, I do kind of have dedicated carry mags that are pretty sacred. I don't want them hitting the concrete or getting in the dirt. So those are those are those are sacred carry mags. And then I kind of retire mags to be my training mags. Then you're giving me the idea that I could retire training bags to be my dry fire mags mm-hmm. and, and mark them accordingly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So there you go. That, that would be another thought there. Uh, now I, w- I want to hear some more of your thoughts with well, I wanted to, to redundancy. I wanted to point out something about d- the dummy ammo before we get off that topic, because you mentioned that you should check them out because, you know, the eyes see what they expect to see. So maybe you expect to see, you know, bright orange or yellow or shiny, maroon whatever and and you just don't notice that it's actually a live round but this is also an argument for making sure you're using high visibility dummy ammo uh, as opposed to somebody who's a cheap son of a gun and they just take an actual round and drill out the primer or something and dump the powder i've seen people just remove primers and powder and say poof yeah now it's a dummy round and they do that because maybe it's it's more realistic shaped it's uh, weighted maybe a little bit more realistically but but it's so much easier than if that's the dummy rounds I'm using in dry fire, it makes it a lot easier to screw up and accidentally load a live round because it looks the exact same. Uh, so anyway, I, I just wanted to highlight that, that that that's that's also a good argument for making sure your dummy ammo is highly distinguishable uh, if it's not already. Yeah, I think primarily where I've seen people use reload, we'll call it reloaded ammo, uh, for dummy rounds, uh, meaning like they, they just put a actual bullet in a empty once fired case, you know, no primer in it, um, whatever is those. And I think this is a valid thing to do. It's, I see it a little bit more commonly amongst competition shooters because they tend to care about this a little bit more. Um, and I'm not saying that defensive, oriented folks shouldn't care about this with respect to reload practice, but it's really good to practice reloads with weighted magazines. And, and what I mean is the competition folks tend to really care about that practice mag being 
like pretty much exactly the same weight as what a real one would be. And so they'll, they'll fashion their own dummy rounds, so to speak, from reloads so they can actually have practice magazines that are, um, that are true to weight. And so that, that's a viable thing. Um, but you're not wrong with respect to like using high viz dummy rounds is, is a good idea. It's now safer. I do know some folks that will like let's say they reload their their ammo anyway. You know that's very common amongst competition shooters. And let's say that uh, you always buy blue bullets, and you know for whatever reason like that. And there's actually a company, there's a brand that's called Blues Bullets, and that that's the actual color of their bullets. Let's say you, the ones you actually shoot in competition are blue. Well, you could actually buy red ones or yellow ones or green ones, something that's totally different. That is your dry fire, you know, uh, simulated ammo. Um, and by the way, some, some of you are like, really? Like there's all these different colors. Um, if you're not familiar, uh, a lot of reloaders will use cast lead bullets that have been polymer coated. Um, and you can get that polymer coating material from all, I mean, you can get it in every, any color you want, and a lot of the uh, companies that sell re, you know bullets for reloading purposes for competition shooters specifically because it's so popular amongst them will sell bullets in a variety of colors. So anyway, I just I just present that as an alternative thought just to give some people some things to to think on. But I'll say for myself, loading up my my practice mags fully with uh, ready up gear. Um, Dummy, dummy rounds is close enough to actual weight for me. Man, maybe that's not, maybe that's why I'm not quite, you know, Rob Latham level yet, you know, <laughs> but uh, I don't think so. But I, I, I'm perfectly happy with the weight of my magazines with a dummy round, actual de- dummy ammo loaded into them. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, last thought from me, and I know we're running out of time, but I, yeah. I just wanted to highlight that if you might be listening to this and thinking, wow, man, like if you just do one of those things, isn't that enough? Or I already do this, so I don't need to do that also. Uh, I already have a dojo. I don't have live ammo. So is it really important that I make my gun inert? Or uh, I, you know, I, I already uh, make my gun inert. So does it really matter if I have a dojo or does it really matter if I, you know, have dedicated mags or does it really matter uh, if I remove live ammo since I've shoved a barrel block in it, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, do I have to have a procedure if I just always do X, Y, Z thing? I, right. So you might be tempted to feel like, well, I already do one, one of these things or something that I feel is just as good. Is it really important I do all, all six or 10 or however many of these things that we've discussed today? And my answer to that, my answer to that is yes. Like fundamentally, firearm safety has always been about redundancy as of safety, you know, safety generally in most arenas and professions and industries is about redundancy, right? The idea that if I fail to do one thing, I'll be okay because we still have these other things I'm doing that I'd have to screw up several times over in order to actually have uh, the accident, right? So, so just bear that in mind that that applies here too. that redundancy is a good thing. And it's okay to do three or four things that all equally so um, significantly reduce the risk of negligent discharge down to almost zero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. 
redundancy is a good thing where safety is involved. And even you know, like, I wouldn't even necessarily, I think a lot of what we've talked about today are really excellent ideas, but I would also say that you don't necessarily have to do all the things that we recommended or that we talked about, but if you do some of them and you have some redundancy across your, your system, your way of, of conducting dry fire practice, um, that that's good. Cause you know, that, that, you have certain things in place and then you have things kind of backing up those things. And, you know, typically, and this is typically true of a lot of accidents that occur is that it's usually not just one violation that occurs, safety violation. It's usually multiple things that fail. And, and that's almost what makes these types of accidents when they do occur, like truly um, unfortunate is because multiple failures had to occur for it to happen. And it really goes to show just how far we as non-perfect human beings are able and or willing to go to make mistakes. Um, and that's unfortunately the nature of being human is that we're inherently lazy creatures uh, a lot of times. And so, um, you know, it's easy to get stuck in a rut. It's easy to get complacent. It's easy to make excuses. Um, it's easy to get distracted and have your mind somewhere else. And so have redundancies and do everything you can to follow the, the procedures and it should keep you safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the final thing I'll add here, that I have it here on my uh, notes. Uh, and I know we are over time, but uh, just it's just food for thought. I don't have to spend a lot of time on this. And it's it's kind of in the form of a question. And that is, why are we always pressing the trigger in dry fire? Okay. See, the um, the inherently dangerous part of dry fire, besides, like, obviously, we want to have good practices in place as far as safe direction that we conduct dry fire. Now, we haven't really talked about that that much today. Um, which maybe is a bit of an of an injustice in that part of an assumption I think that we made with respect to establishing a dry fire dojo. We may have mentioned it, but more in passing, is is that you have a safe direction or you've identified a safe direction in which you point, orient, and conduct the the handling of the pistol so that it is done in a safe direction. Right. That's part. That's one of the redundancies here that uh, we speak of. Um, some of you might live in a more urban or, or, uh, yeah, more urban environment, more city-like environment where maybe you don't have as well-defined a safe direction. Like me here, I'm, I'm in a suburban environment, but I have a basement and that becomes such a easy solution for dry fire. Cause technically if there's no one else in the basement with me, all four directions are, are safe. And that's, that's part of my procedure is I do dry fire. I have targets on all four walls, but I make sure there's nobody downstairs when I do that. And sometimes I might have kids in a neighboring room or something, um, and I will just do it in the one direction, you know, where there's no, no, no ability for anyone to be, be between me and the wall. Okay. So anyway, that's, that was um, probably a bit of an unfortunate assumption, I think, is we were focused on some of these other things today. But I think people understand that, right? Have a safe direction. If you're in a more urban environment, you need to do your best to make the least bad choice that becomes your safe direction. And then I would absolutely encourage you to use tools like the barrel block that truly, you know, or, or any other true inert dry fire tool 
to because then it becomes really incumbent upon you to ensure that you're being safe and also you have redundancy in place. Um, but back to my question, why are we always pressing the trigger? I think so many people think dry fire means that I pick up a gun or I draw the gun and I press the trigger, click, and then I reset and I do it again. While I do think that learning your trigger and learning how to manipulate that and how to hold everything really steady, steady as you press the trigger, like that's all valid and, and uh, important to do. It's not the only thing you should be doing in dry fire. And not only that, should I be practicing to get in the routine where every time I draw my gun, I automatically press the trigger? And I would say no, because we know of plenty. I mean, J- J- uh, Matthew and I just did the Just Justified Saves episode earlier today. We know of plenty of instances where people have stopped uh, violent criminal actors by simply drawing their gun. You know, maybe maybe they were ready to go ahead and fire shots, but they determined they didn't have to. And good on them, because as they were drawing their gun and beginning to address a threat, the threat saw what was occurring and at, by their own will elected to not continue the violent attack, right? So we shouldn't be automatically wired to draw and ooh, press trigger, okay? So there's some validity there from also a, a tactical perspective to not necessarily always draw and press trigger to just get in the habit of drawing and bringing the gun to your eye, picking up a, a, a good sight picture based on whatever it is you determine is, is acceptable in your dry fire uh, uh, environment and just simply getting a good sight picture. Okay, cool. Maybe even practicing just drawing to a low ready. Not a bad idea either. But the point is, is there's um, way more to dry fire than just, Press click, press click, press click, press click. So that's my final words. I would actually say that, uh, yeah, I think you were muted or something. I I would actually say that most days I do dry fire, which is almost every day. uh, I actually don't do that many trigger presses. It's mostly about getting my hand on my gun and getting my sights on target. That's what I care about the most about. The pressing the trigger part for me is the easy part. So uh, the, the thing that becomes a little bit mm, perishable in terms of skill-wise is like how consistent is clear garment, grip to gun, gun up to eye, see sights. So I actually probably do more draws without trigger presses than I do with trigger presses. And that might surprise some people. Makes sense to me. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode today. Uh, I, I know I did. I thought this was a good discussion. I thought we covered a lot of important uh, aspects of dry fire practice and doing it safely. Uh, we appreciate all of you for uh, participating with us, listening, supporting us, supporting our sponsors, especially. Today's episode was sponsored again by Gunfighter Gun Oil. Again, uh, you can find them at gunfighteroil.com. Uh, please check them out. Give them support because they support us. And also our other sponsor, Ready Up Gear Dummy Ammo specifically, uh, was was uh, what we called for here today. But we also mentioned some other Ready Up Gear products in the course of our episode today. You can find them all at readyupgear.com. And uh, we also mentioned the Barrel Block. 
which is a product we sell and have sold for a number of years and one that we now proudly own. And you can find that at barrelblock.com. So just some things to think about there. And I would also say, uh, I mentioned in the beginning that this episode was brought to you by like almost like a sp- title sponsorship of uh, Mount Men Medical. Maybe not a bad idea to have your medical stuff nearby when you do dry fire too. If something goes awry, yeah, like I see Jacob sitting on his desk there behind him. Look at that. Right there. Yeah. Anyway, guys, thank you for your support. Thank you for your support of our sponsors. Any final parting words, Jacob? Uh, share this with someone you know who conducts dry fire. You know, take the link and send it out via email or text it to somebody and say, I thought this was really good. And let's let's make sure that more people are conducting safe dry fire. Amen to that. Amen to that. So with that, we will bid you adieu until next week, next time. A reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. Take care.